this week, if you're new, welcome. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. We are going through uh, a, a series, a season, focusing on discipleship. And this week, we get to focus on the disciplines, which we, we find are a, a way to be discipled. We're very excited for that, very encouraged to talk about training and, and what it looks like to be prepared in this world, and someone who really understood that, we celebrate tomorrow. Um, tomorrow's uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and, and we get to remember and celebrate his life. Uh, what was accomplished under his watch was pretty phenomenal. It was pretty phenomenal. And we take a day and we remember th- those accomplishments. We remember the, the transformation that was brought about uh, really under his leadership and ministry to the community, to this country, and to the world. He showed us that every human being has intrinsic value. Every human being uh, is the Imago Dei, the image of God. Uh, And it's profound. And he invited other people into that. And uh, he didn't invite people, though, and just say, hey, why don't you go and and march? And why don't you go do sit-ins? He didn't just say go. He said... You're going to face great hostility. There's, you, you might be punched. You might be hit. You might be spit upon. Uh, you might be jailed. Racial slurs will come at you left and right. People will scream in your face. But the way in which he taught his people is this nonviolent, patient, peaceful protest so he didn't just send people out. He actually started um, by training uh, young African-Americans that were coming in saying, we want to do this. We This is right. This is the right direction. Uh, the whole community that in, he invited in, he said, we're going to train because you need to be ready. You are going to endure something very difficult. And it's near impossible to endure uh, without training and preparation um, and what we see happen is an incredible shift in this country, um, a shift towards equality. And it's powerful, huge moment in our country's history. I remember watching uh, an interview with uh, uh, the American, great American author, poet, writer, uh, Maya Angelou. And someone asked her, what was it like? Because she marched with Dr. King. What was it like? To march with Dr. King. What was it like to be in those rooms where you guys are talking about these massive moments in history? And we look back at, on history and we see how massive and influential it was. But she said, we were just trying to be faithful to the moment. Um, we knew it was important, but we had no idea the scope and breadth and impact and influence that this would have on this country. We had no idea. Um, so hindsight is twenty twenty. but we were just being faithful in the moment. We were prepping and training and living in a practiced way. I think sometimes we do the same thing with the uh, Apostle Paul or the, the disciples' ministry. We look at their ministry. Uh, we're in the book of Acts right now. I mean, do you read Acts and you go, oh, this looks like what we're doing? No, we look at it and we're like, oh my goodness, this is such a robust and powerful, influential church. Uh, practicing great things. The disciples practicing miracles. Um, the apostles in these powerful moments. We look back and, we, and we, we say, I want those outcomes. And we forget. And are often blind 
to the fact that there was process and there was practice that led to those moments and led to those outcomes. The disciples were being formed and shaped by following Christ in in the day-to-day, in the mundane, really. In the quiet, they were being shaped and formed from the inside out. So the series that we're in right now, we are contending for the inner man. We're contending for the heart, the inner character of a person, because that is where we are formed and shaped. And that's what shapes often the things that we accomplish But we spend most of our time on the outer man, right? We spend most of our time considering the outer man, the outer woman, uh, our reputation, our accomplishments. But we know because of Proverbs 23 that we need to contend for the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's pretty significant. I love the New Living Translation. It says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Your heart determines the course of your life. So caring for, guarding your heart, the inner man, the inner woman, involves often things that we as a culture despise. Do you see this? Even as if I say the spiritual disciplines, I almost fall asleep. There's something about them that we don't really understand. uh, And we despise them because it's often work done in the mundane. It's often work done in obscurity, in living a quiet life. That's never going to be the slogan of a business. We'll help you live a quiet life. That's not inspiring. It's not flashy. It's not viral. Those are the things that we prize But we see that the the life of a believer, the inner life, is developed and grown and formed in in the mundane, in the practices, in the training. So that's why we're doing this. Um, We're so excited where we're going. Uh, A couple weeks ago, Kyle did some deconstruction. We need some deconstruction. Personally, this church needs deconstruction uh, on this topic of discipleship. And we weren't just talking about the deconstruction of discipleship, but the methods and models that we've all kind of participated in that don't give us a helpful framework for biblical discipleship to flourish in. Really significant. So we need to think about our past experiences and the way we've approached discipleship and maybe retool that and maybe rethink and deconstruct some of those things. We've been using this statement, whole life disciples being transformed by the way of Jesus. Last week we got to uh, touch on the This idea of the way of Jesus. Um, Kyle focused on the whole life. And then this week, um, we are going to talk about kind of the nuts and bolts of being transformed. What does that look like to be transformed by the way of Jesus? So last week, we examined Jesus' original call and invitation uh, for discipleship in his day. It was a really well-defined one. Do you remember? Uh, The rabbinic system of education. Very robust, built-out way to be a disciple. It was, it was very clear what men and women were signing up for in his day. And so it was a useful word when he said, come and be my disciple. What might be a helpful word for us is this idea of apprenticeship. Uh, many of us would probably know better and have a better context of what an apprentice is. Um, apprentice is one who's trained by a skilled employer in a trade uh, or skill. It, it, it's, it's someone who sits under someone. If you're in the trades, you know it. Like This is actually built into the system of how um, your business continues on. Um, 
but you apprentice a skilled leader, a skilled employer. And so if that's helpful for you as we go forward, when, when you hear the word disciple to go, I'm an apprentice of Jesus. I'm apprenticing under his leadership, his guidance, his authority. If that helps you uh, think about these things, uh, I just encourage you to think of it uh, in that way. Um, so also last week we um, talked about um, this idea of being transformed into biblical disciples um, is very difficult if we don't recognize what or who we're before all the time, where our time is spent, what we spend watching, viewing, what we spend seeing and thinking about. That shapes us greatly. And if we are before the world, if we're practicing the rhythms of this age, we will not become biblical disciples. So the practice of the spiritual disciplines is Jesus's practice. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the practice of the spiritual disciplines. This is Jesus' Jesus' way of living. This is the way of Jesus. So last week, where we ended is we ended with this statement. We We desire to see that a casual understanding of discipleship leads to a feeble practice of the disciplines, which consequently positions us ever before the world. Our minds and hearts then entangled in personal habitual sin and worldly rhythms are ultimately discipled by the devil himself. And that seems very heavy and it's like, okay, man, that seems a little dramatic. Shouldn't there be some sort of gray? And there's not. And, And the more and more I talk about discipleship, the more and more I think about discipleship and following Jesus, I really see that there's no middle ground. There's no gray zone for a believer. There's no room for nominal believism. There's no room for cultural Christianity. The devil is at work. And we talked about the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? The devil is at work, and often he disguises himself as an angel of light. So we have to be able to discern his work is subversive, and it targets the believer's heart. It targets the church. So especially if we're talking about this, know that there is some contending that will have to take place. There is some battling that will have to take place. Let not your heart be discouraged. Um, 1 John 3 says it like this. And I'll pull it out. 1 John 3, 7 through 10, I believe. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices, so that word practice, righteousness, is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is in the gray zone. Is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning since the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's a pretty black and white little section there. So if we keep finding ourselves practicing repeated sinfulness habitually, a very good question for us to ask is, what am I before? 
What's shaping you? Where is this behavior coming from? What is underneath the underneath? And we have to dig. We have to dig. What am I abiding in? As believers, we want it to be evident that we are children of God. Amen? We, I think we all desire that. And if you're itching as a believer, you're like, why does my life not look? That's what you're looking for. You want it to be evident to yourself and to others that you are a child of God. You're a disciple. You're in the Talmudim of Christ. And you're following him. So this conversation is so important. So we have three enemies of faith. And I just want to keep these before us because I think they're going to show us or the disciplines are going to show us how we contend with these things. So the three enemies of this life, the world, the rhythms of this world, the flesh, your, your flesh, and the devil. These things are set to contend against us and in the invitation to practice Jesus' way, to be his Talmudim, to be his disciples, to apprentice Jesus. Ephesians 2 gives us this whole picture. Ephesians 2 Verse 1 through 3 says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which once, once, in which, sorry, (laughs) in which you once walked. So I don't talk like that often. In which you once walked, following the what? The course of this world. The world. The practices of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Air in ancient times met this spiritual realm. The prince of the spiritual realm they're referring to is the devil and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of what? Our flesh. It's not talking about your physical body, but uh, he's talking about the indwelling sin nature of a man. Your flesh. The devil and the world try to partner with your flesh. The sins that seem most appealing to you. It's easy to look at other people's sin and go, oh, I can't believe it. But there are sins that are most appealing to you. And the devil knows it. And the world presents you all the time with opportunity to follow in those passions. So we need to consider these things. So if the disciplines uh, are the means in which God, through his spirit, communes with his people... It's no wonder that when you examine the enemy's strategy, you'll find that the disciplines are targeted, the inner man is targeted, the inner woman is targeted, distractions, confusion, anything to keep God's people from prayer. Prayer is boring. You don't have time for scriptures. It's archaic. Keep God's people from the truth of God, from fasting. Here's a commercial for Burger King. Here's a commercial for I always food. If anytime you fasted, you will be so hyper aware of food commercials everywhere, everywhere. You need more. Resting, confessing real community. Keep the people of God from being real disciples. I believe the devil is totally fine with a person attending a church. I believe the devil is totally fine with a person greeting people at the doors, a person leading worship, even a person preaching, as long as that person is not allowing the Spirit to shape and form their inner being. Because that brings about transformation 
And that's terrifying to the enemy. So know, as we talk about these things, be aware, be on watch, the the word says. Consider this another reason why we're having this conversation. I'm trying to make a case for you. Uh, this is with writer of Hebrews, which we believe is Paul. This certainly sounds like Paul. Listen to what he says. It's pretty uh, funny and a little snarky. In fact, uh, Hebrews five about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. What a jerk. <laughs> we're going to try to explain it, but you're kind of. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. And get this, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's what a mature believer looks like. They're trained in discernment to distinguish good from evil. Christian, as a Christian, we need godly discernment 150 times a day at least. In, in, in relationships, in job scenarios, in our family, you need to be able to pause and go, what is God saying? How do I partner with the Holy Spirit in this relationship? How do I connect the dots with what you are doing, Lord? Because I see one way, but you see a totally different way. And evil, the Bible talks about, crouches and hides and disguises itself. So we need discernment all the time. So what Paul is saying here is, and, and, and in a sense we see that even since the beginning of the church, it's, it can be full of spiritual babies. And what do babies do? They suck. That's what babies do. We, I, have a, I have a one-year-old, so I can say this. But that's what she does. She does not mow the, lo- the yard. She does not contribute financially. But she does suck. She has a bottle, and she drinks from the bottle. And she cries when she wants the bottle or when she's tired. And so we treat her accordingly. And I'm not saying it's bad to be a baby. It's not bad that she's a baby. It's not bad to be a baby if you're a new believer. But if you've been walking with the Lord for years and years and you've been attending church and you've volunteered and you've made this a part of your life, yet you still are easily swayed. You're still easily confused about something when presented a probable opposite. We need to take note. We need to be growing in our maturity so that we can discern what's good and what's evil. This is a bit of a crisis. Jake Metter, in his book, In Search for the Common Good, he cites a Barna statistic at 38% of Americans claim to be evangelical. But only 8% of those believe in the most basic Christian tenets, the most fundamental things that ultimately would make you a Christian or not. Only 8% of Americans. And then when you start really boiling it down, those that practice the way of Jesus, those that that are disciples of Jesus, that that number gets smaller. These are low bars. So what we're seeing is that 
Christians walking in the power and the way of Jesus is not that common. It's a narrow road. But we really find a lot of hope in the fact that God has not left us alone to our own devices. And he's given us Jesus and his life And we get to imitate him. We get to imitate the way he lived. And the way he lived was practicing the spiritual disciplines. So we're going to talk about some spiritual disciplines. We're not going to go through all of them at all, but I'm going to highlight a few. But here's a few reminders before we do that. If you head, if you go head on into the disciplines without considering your existing character, your current systems of understanding on how this should work, and past experiences... The disciplines will either be yet another form of crushing legalism, a to-do list. Meaning that you will endeavor to get it all right and inevitably fail, which we all do. This is a, this is a lifelong process. And, and while you're failing, you'll be preaching to others and demanding they do it the right way. It's really, really corrosive to a community and not helpful framework And also in another direction, if not anchored in Scripture, the disciplines will become sort of some uh, mystical way to connect with God. You do these things and God comes down and it's some sort of mystical thing. There is a mystery to this. But it's not mystical. And to protect yourself from new agey thinking, which kind of is prevalent in our culture, this idea of being spiritual, non-religious but spiritual, what? What is that? To protect ourselves from kind of combining two things, we have to be anchored in Scripture. So as a reminder as well, the spiritual disciplines do not change you in and of themselves. They do, however, position you before the Holy Spirit as He transforms you. You are transformed. You don't transform yourself. The Holy Spirit transforms you and leads you in the way of Jesus. The disciples are tracks or rails in which the engine of the spiritual life can chug along in. Pete Scazzaro talks about it as a trellis where the vine can grow. It's not a trellis where this line goes that way and this line goes that way and this is dictated, but it's one where the Christian life, when abiding in Jesus, in the vine, the branches begin to grow and produce beautiful fruit produce compelling fruit. The disciplines exist as a trellis for our spiritual life to climb and flourish and grow in. The definition of discipleship that we've used, kind of stealing from our statement, is this. By practicing the way of Jesus, we learn to submit. It's a really important word. We learn to submit our whole lives to the transformative work of the Holy Spirit. We learn to submit our whole lives. The foundation, friend, of the good life. The foundation of the good life, the Jesus life, is submission. And it's not this idea of a casual yielding, because uh, I think we all probably do that at times. We, we casually yield, but it's actually this idea of an emptying out of all our desires, all of our ways of doing things in a way that asks God, will you define it? Will you show me? Because remember, Isaiah 55 
Jesus says, or God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. And so we actually have to lay down our way and pick up his way, which is a process, but it is a beautiful one. So we're going to go through a, a list of the disciplines, and I want to categorize them in two, two ways for us this morning. I think this is really helpful. This is helpful for me. Um, categories of practices of resistance and practices of engagement. This is uh, not an exhaustive list of the disciplines. Uh, if you need to take a picture of it, take a picture of it. But um, the, uh, the idea of practices of resistance, these are ones that we practice that resist the, the world, that resist the rhythms of the world, that resist the temptations of our flesh, that resist the devil. These are practices that help us not fall in line with the rhythms of this world. And the practice of, practices of engagement are simply that, engaging in life with God. Engaging in the things that he has set us up with to succeed, to live in. Um, and so in this category, I want to I do this kind of, we're going to talk about a few others. Scripture, prayer, and community. I'll just say this, those are the core disciplines. Those are the fundamental disciplines. You will not be able to practice or understand any other discipline apart from your understanding of what that discipline is in the Scripture through prayer. And community is the context in which all of these are practiced. God does not invite us to just an individual walk, but He invites us into the family of God, into a local body of believers to be encouraged and helped along. It's really profound, and I think we're going to see um, how significant... Uh, community is uh, within the church. It does seem, though, that we are inundated with community language, life together, community groups, life on life, right? You've heard it. Yet somehow real community seems to be elusive. So next week, we're going to spend the whole week talking about community because I think what we're really looking for is belonging. So the first one we want, we want to look at this morning is Sabbath. And I'm going to try to go through these. There's a lot to cover. Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day blessed by God and set aside for rest and worship. It's a weekly celebration. It's a day set aside for rest and worship. God worked for six days and then on the seventh he rested. He built a rhythm into the fabric of creation. And we participate in this rhythm though in the story of God, Jesus' ministry and life brings about a fulfillment to Sabbath as not only a day, but as a new way to live. You live in rest. We rest forever in the finished work of the cross, the resurrection of Jesus. So in one sense, for the believer, the way of rest is a new manner of living, which is really exciting. It's not one of striving. My, my yoke is easy. My burden is light kind of thing. This new reality, though, was foreshadowed in the Old Testament by God instructing his people to set aside uh, one day, a 24-hour period, to do nothing. So, in Jesus, it's become more, of, more than just one day, which is really good. But I think it would be a mistake if we say, well, in 2020, good. I don't need to have a day. Uh, I could just live in this way of rest. And I think that would be a mistake. I think that we need a day, a 24-hour period where we just do nothing. And that is very difficult. 
No more emails, no plotting, no working, just trusting God. Because when we do that, we, con- we contend, we fight against the perpetual nature of this world. Saying more, be everywhere, know everything, fix everything, don't miss out. Don't miss out. So a day fights against that and it gives us a great understanding, a greater understanding that God is in control. Um, in his book, Garden City, Work, Rest, and the Art of Being Human, John Mark Comer says this, which I love. Sabbath is an expression of faith. Faith that there is a creator and he's good. We are his creation This is his world. We live under his roof, drink his water, eat his food, breathe his oxygen. So on the Sabbath, we don't just take a day off from work. We take a day off from toil. We give him all of our fear, anxiety, stress, worry. We let go. We stop ruling. We stop subduing. We just be. We just exist. And we remember our place in the universe so that we never forget. There is a God. And I am not him. So we do this individually. We also do this communally. This is a family thing. Um, we share meals and other activities. We enjoy nature. Um, it's a day to pray and enjoy community, to jo- enjoy God's presence together. And it's easier to trust God's provision and design when others are doing it alongside you. It's really powerful when a whole community gets a hold of this. Walter Brueggemann in his great book, uh, Sabbath as Resistance, which is an awesome title, uh, in a society addicted to the drugs of accomplishment and accumulation, the Sabbath is an act of resistance, a way of saying enough. Pharaoh and his empire are alive and well, and like the Israelites, we must live into our own exodus, our own freedom we find in Jesus. And Sabbath is a weapon against the idols of our day. It's powerful. I can say this, if, if, if that's not convincing at all, Sabbath has changed my life. It has changed Audrey and I's life. Our family life has been greatly shaped and changed by taking a day and doing nothing. And it's something we have to protect. and It's something we're learning still how to do, but where we don't do anything. And we try not to plan or plot, but we just exist and say, God, you are in control. You are in control of the outcomes. I'm not in control of the outcomes. And anything that comes down the pipe uh, somehow comes through the sovereign hands of God, and I trust you. And it's a day, it's a weekly reminder and celebration that God is God and I'm not. Let's talk about fasting. Biblical fasting is a willing abstinence from food for a period of time for spiritual purposes. It's not for dietary or physical bodily purposes. A fast is not for dietary or physical bodily purposes. Fasting is one of the most abused and least used practices of Jesus Yet for a thousand years, it was one of the core principles of the church. It was one of the core practices of those apprenticing Jesus, those being discipled by the Spirit um, to Jesus. This was key. So we now live, though, in a culture of food, right? When my parents visit Texas, they're like, there are so many Daggum restaurants in Texas, and there there are. It's just like like our streets are lined with restaurants, uh, and that's significant to note. 
this culture is full of indulgence and luxury, addiction. So for many of of us, the desires of our body have come to hold power over us. In the battle with our flesh, we have become its slave and not its master. All throughout Scripture, we see this practice of uh, fasting. Jesus' assumptions on the Sermon on the Mount should really give us great pause if we don't fast and we've never fasted. Jesus says, when you fast, there's assumption that a believer, someone following Jesus, fasts. Um, He preaches fasting in the Sermon on the Mount right next to giving and prayer. Fasting is right in there. That should be really significant to us that Jesus, God himself, in his great Sermon on the Mount, says prayer and fasting, key things. I think we all know that prayer is key. But did you know that fasting is key to us knowing who Jesus is? When you fast, you're not just abstaining from food, but you are filling yourself with the word and with prayer. Seeking the presence of God in an intensified way. The most common way to do this is by abstaining from all food and drink, excluding water. Just having water. That's the most common practice that we see uh, in the scriptures. As your body hungers, your heart and spiritual eyes begin to awaken to the Spirit of God in a whole new way. Remember this, though, that that fasting without dining on the Scriptures, without prayerfulness, is just a diet. And it bears no spiritual weight. Okay? Know that. This is something wholly different. And as a side note, fasting also offers us empathy and solidarity with the poor and with the hungry. There are people all over the globe, there are people in this city that are hungry physically, And when we drive by or when we see, when we come in contact, we can empathize and go, I know that feeling and it is a painful one. That's just a side note. Um, Jesus cast out a demon that the disciples couldn't cast out. And they were confused by this. And Jesus says, there are some things in the spiritual world that can only be accomplished through prayer and fasting. So significant things. If we're going to contend, if we're going to be real disciples, this needs to be a practice of ours. Um, In times of emergency, we see the people of God calling a national fast. Um, Wartime, we see them calling for fast. This is something that we can do together. It's prescribed that we do together. It counters the flesh in one of the most aggressive ways as we rise above our hunger pangs. We're satisfied within our soul. We beat our body into submission by the power of Christ and we combat the bodily desires. This practice creates endurance as we battle other lusts of the flesh, right? Sexual lusts, the lust for power, pride. We are emboldened to battle well by fasting. There's so much to say on this. We could do a whole series on on fasting. Um, Okay, I've got just a couple more. Hang with me. Solitude. Withdrawing from regular work, busyness, or human interaction to hear the shepherd's voice. In solitude, you are often face-to-face with who you really are. That's why we don't like it. We don't like solitude. It doesn't come real naturally to many of us. Um, But as you are alone, the Lord speaks gently and graciously His plans for you. Amen? 
I'm so thankful for that. And your very understanding of identity can be shaped in solitude, meditating on the word of God, meditating on the promises of God, allowing space for the Holy Spirit to illuminate the work of Christ inside of us. We see this uh, in Jesus's ministry often, right? Withdrawing to the lonely place, the desolate place. This was a practice of Jesus. We actually see this the very first thing that Jesus did. His ministry, he's baptized. His ministry is inaugurated on the earth. God the Father speaks, says, this is my son who I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove. It's an amazing moment. You would think that Jesus would just go on a rampage of ministry. He's 30, but he goes out for 40 days to the desolate place to be with the Father. It says the Spirit let him out to be with the Father. He's tempted by the devil. He easily resists. And then he goes back to, um, to work. He goes back to ministry. And for one day, morning to night, he ministers. And then the scripture says, the next morning, while it was still dark, what did Jesus do? He got up and he withdrew again to the desolate place. This was the practice of Jesus. Solitude was where he communed with his father. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, the son, Jesus, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. If this was Jesus's practice, we should be compelled to find solitude and space to be with the father. Silence. Got two more. Silence. Silence is the practice of listening. Silence is the practice of listening. It's not just an emptying of the mind, but a filling of the mind with the word of God. You will have no solitude. You will have no peace without silence. This is one that I think is really absent from our life. Um, in my opinion, I think solitude and silence are the most necessary pieces to the Christian life in our current age. We are in a digitally deafening age. It's deafening. There's no silence. We're ever before our screens, ever before our tools of work, computers. The, the numbers are staggering how long we spend in front of a screen. Endless information, endless connectivity, endless entertainment, endless noise with all of these platforms that were before. So I want to ask, could it be possible that the algorithms of these platforms are actually discipling us? Feeding us what it thinks we need? This is what you need to see. This is the advertisement. This is the way of living. This is this, this is this, this is this. Ever before us, constantly, constantly, constantly. It's deafening. How many Insta stories can you watch in a row? How many TikToks? How many videos? How many YouTubes? How many can you watch before your mind just turns to mush? Another, another thing, and this is something that I kind of have a proclivity for. I love, uh, I love news. I love information. I want to know what's happening in this world. I want to know what's happening in my community. But we exist in a time of the 24-hour news cycle. All of its unbiased content ever before us. How is it forming us? How is it shaping us? Is being before constant information shaping you 
more than Jesus, more than His way? And I'll tell you this, news is a finite amount of information. News is not infinite. And if we live in an age where the 24-hour news cycle is ever before us, constantly playing story after story after story, we have to recognize the truth of the matter. And the truth of the matter is that you're not always watching news. You're usually watching someone's opinion about the news, which is significantly different than the news. So as a believer, I have to warn my own heart and my own life on what I think is truth. What I think is real, in fact, I have to know and have the power of a mature believer to discern good from evil. Proclamation, evangelism. This is another big one. Uh, Verbally sharing your faith. Um, We overcome and see others overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. This should be a practice of every believer. Jesus was constantly doing this. He was constantly speaking out the kingdom of God. He was constantly speaking out to others. Our practice should be constantly looking for opportunities for us to verbally share the good news of Jesus Christ. Look what he did. Look what he's doing. I'm broken, but he loves me anyway. The last one I want to hit on, secrecy, secrecy, secrecy is doing things for God and others without receiving acknowledgement or praise, (laughs) living for God's approval instead of others approval. Friends, this is how we practice the posture of humility. This is that not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing kind of thing. Secrecy also does not leverage important or leverage information for selfish gain or weaponize information against others. Godly secrecy murders gossip in its tracks. And if you're sitting there going, ah, I don't really gossip, you, you do. You do. You probably call it something else, but you do gossip. And here's a way to think about gossip gossip is anytime you speak negatively about or listen to someone. Else, speak negatively about a person whom you both know. Gossip comes very naturally to the human heart because it positions us as either a victim or it positions us as superior to someone else. Godly secrecy allows us to learn to trust God rather than our own sense of personal justice. Secrecy. Who would have thought? Who would have thunk it is how I grew up. It's pretty amazing. Um, okay, I'll stop there. Um, talking with a buddy, Dave, this week, uh, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about downstream and upstream, and I think this is really key. There's going to be some disciplines for you that are upstream disciplines. Can you put the, that list up again? There's going to be some that are downstream. So for the introvert, you're like, silence, solitude? you got to be kidding me. Love it. (laughs) Um, uh, Those are going to be downstream disciplines, ones that you can probably practice pretty naturally. There's going to be upstream disciplines. That's different. For the introvert, that might be like sharing verbally your faith. It sounds like a nightmare. Uh, Those are the ones that you need to lean into. Those are the ones that are going to really press against your flesh, going to really press against your worldview. So I would just encourage you, as you look at these disciplines, at the disciplines, you would be encouraged to lean into the ones that maybe don't come naturally to you. That's really significant. So 
Uh, we as a church, I, I just, before we even, before I talk about this last piece, the point of all of this is just to start. Just take one step. Take one practice. Start small. This is a long game. Marathon, right? Anybody get up from the couch and run a marathon that hasn't trained? Absolutely not. I think the first guy died. I think that's, that's how that worked out. Um, so we have to really think about training in a, in, a, in, in, a, in a very important way. We have to consider it. So this week, as a church, we are going to fast Monday through Friday. We are calling a fast. And in a lot of ways, since uh, how we kind of talked about this discipleship thing as contending, this is wartime contending. We want to fast. We want to see God do things that we cannot do on our own strength. That we cannot see happen to this city by just getting bigger and stronger. Like that's not it. It's not by might or by power, but it's by what? Spirit of God. So we're going to fast Monday through Friday. I would just encourage you, if you've never fasted, just do, do, do something. Um, maybe for some it's, it's a, a couple meals on a day. Maybe it's a whole day. Maybe it's lunch to lunch. Maybe it's two days where you go for 48 hours. I'm not going to eat any food. This is abstaining from all food and drink um, besides water. Uh, there's going to be some of you that can do five days. We're going to be sending out each day a scripture reminder, a reading, some encouragement of why we fast. Um, but we're going to do this together and we are going to contend for the inner man. We're going to contend for the inner woman. We're going to contend for the heart, for from it flow our vision of life. Um, and we're going to ask God to change us, to transform us. And I believe he's going to do that. And he's going to do that in the mundane. He's going to do it in the quiet, the desolate place. So come, let's go together and do this. Are you in? Okay, it's going to take some time. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. And we know that you have a way that's better than our way. And we're trying to find it. We're trying to see clearly. And God, we are in a a world full of tons of distraction and things that seem probable and things that seem hopeful and, and promise many things, God. But those things we know will never last. Those things are not eternal. And so we are seeking the things that are above. We are seeking first your kingdom and trusting that all things will follow. God, this is us seeking your kingdom. We want to know how to seek your kingdom more. We we want to know how to abide in you more. And we trust that all the desires of our heart, all the personalities and the unique things that you've done in our life will follow. And we trust you with all that. Trust you with those outcomes. But we pray that you would show us a way that's different than ours. And that we could do it together. And that we would be encouraged by one another to fight the good fight, endure to the end. We love you, God. We trust you. Amen. Amen.